the indivisible operations of the Trinity um, or the inseparable operations of the Trinity is a, uh, a common phrase that is very quickly uh, something that the church arrives at really immediately after you say God is Trinity, then you, you, you want to ask, well, how does that affect how we think of how God acts in, in certain respects? And one of the things that the church decided very, very early and recognized was uh, kind of virtually contained in, in scripture was this axiom so-called or this operating principle, uh, opera ad extra induisa sunt, the external acts or works of God, the opera ad extra are not divided. And this was a principle that arose specifically in the context of uh, a real, real uh, difficult problem, which which centers really on the the two mysteries of the faith, Trinity and hypostatic union, mm. and how it could be that at least some effects of God in the economy, namely the, the man Christ and, and all that Christ does, could be proper to one person, namely the Son, uh, while still preserving the, the perfect unity of God as the one Trinity. And so the operat extra in Sunt is one side of the coin trying to articulate how we navigate that issue. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Well, hello, brother. Uh, we're here today talking uh, about inseparable operations. That's right. Um, I, it's, it's early morning here in Kansas City, but you're over in the Netherlands, and I, I think you probably just had lunch. <laughs> I, I did actually, and I, I had a little bit of coffee beforehand, so I'm ready to go. Hope you hope you've had your coffee this morning too. You know, uh, this is going to surprise you a little bit. Uh -oh. I, I actually don't drink coffee. <laughs> well, this is more fascinating than inseparable operations. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I want to know how you do this. <laughs> well, uh, my my. Uh, all my students and colleagues, they all drink coffee. And uh, I don't know, I, I've never quite acquired the taste for it. Um, so I'm a bit of a, a an odd bird <laughs> in that way. <laughs> but really, um, <clears throat> really excited to talk to you about inseparable operations. Uh, what, out of all the topics in theology, this is this is, I think it's one of your favorites. It's, it's definitely one of mine. It, it is, and, and, and I'm uh, looking forward to talking about it as well. Uh, you know, it's prompted by the volume you've just written here, Simply Trinity, which uh, I'm excited to see out. I, I know your work, you know, we, we could talk about some of the slippage in Trinitarian theology on the more academic or professional theology side, but I know your volume is really targeting uh, some of the slippage and reasons behind 
that among evangelicals, largely in the churchly context. And maybe we can just start off talking about where you see in the area of inseparable operations, that slippage happening and some of the, some of the broad causes that church members would be familiar with that are causing some, you know, uh, squish on this issue. Yeah. Squish is a good word. Uh, I should, I should have used that in my book. (laughs) There's a bit of squishiness going on. And uh, it, yeah, it, it should make us a little bit uncomfortable, maybe a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I Sometimes when I hear uh, the Trinity talked about, and, and this is the case both in, at the church level, but it's also the case um, in just common, sometimes very popular treatments of systematic theology. Whether it's textbooks that students are picking up or just sometimes major evangelical leaders of the past, um, sometimes they will talk about the persons of the Trinity in in the work of, say, creation or providence or salvation, but they'll talk about the persons of the Trinity as if the type of uh, unity that def- that defines their work is is just merely uh, a type of cooperation, right? Um, in which the the persons get along and and work together. Um, now, in some cases, uh, and this is what maybe worries me more, uh, sometimes the persons are even spoken of as if they can act alone apart from. The others. Uh, some have gone so far to say, uh, say the father, for example, doesn't need the son or can act unilaterally without the son and the spirit, uh, which is a pretty uh, um, shocking statement to make. Um, you know, the, why is this? Wh- why have we gotten into the habit of, of kind of settling? I could put it that way, settling for what what I would call a very minimal account of unity. Um, there, there probably are a number of reasons, but uh, one that comes to mind is uh, I think on the heels of the 20th century, maybe we're feeling uh, some of the effects of of social trinitarian thought, right, and. Uh, we don't have to get into this in details. It, it can be quite complicated, but uh, I think I would I would just mention that in in some social trinitarian thought, we we've gotten in the habit of of just thinking of of the persons as really their own individuals, right. their own separate agents. Uh, some have gone so far, and <clears throat> some evangelicals have have actually adopted this language of saying, "Well, the uh, the persons." Are their own centers of consciousness or will, <clears throat> which which of course raises the question: Are there are there three wills in the Trinity? Um, and that type of mentality, well, naturally, then when you come to the works of creation or providence or salvation, that's going to have some consequences. Then yeah. uh, you're you're going to start thinking of the persons uh, independently of of one another. So that's just a little 
bit of context. Uh, you know, I've experienced that on the ground in both the church and then in uh, the uh, institutions. And um, uh, but it also, uh, and you know this, uh, it also you'll you'll see it in academia, right? Uh, when when you look at sometimes major philosophers sometimes evangelical philosophers as well, uh, or, or theologians. So, you know, you and I are, are kind of operating a lot at the academic level, um, but it, it trickles down. <laughs> and, it, and it does have, <clears throat> excuse me, it does have effects. Uh, it, does, it does have effects on pastors and yeah. churchgoers and just kind of the common ways that they think about God and it, it can, it can affect everything from how they think about good Friday or how they think about the resurrection or how they think about, um, how, how, how they think about, for example, uh, the application of salvation in their own Christian life yeah. can even affect some of the assumptions they bring to worship. So it it does. I think at least it does have uh, significant consequences, and and so we, it's worth it's um, it's worth getting right. Um, but I, you know, I'd love to hear maybe from you too. Um, you you've been doing a lot of research on inseparable operations. Um, maybe maybe we should just start off and define it and and uh and, and, but i'd love to hear um i'd love to hear you know how this is maybe how this first started to um marinate in your own mind uh this this doctrine um i'll take the pressure off me and, and just punt it back to you and let and, and let you take a first uh yeah first i can stab it what what are we talking about when we say inseparable operations? Yeah, we can we I can do that. Um, I, I I do think just to comment for a moment on on what your point here that you're exactly right that the the main slippage on inseparable operations issue happens down the line from a, from a bit of squish to use that word again on the on the unity of God. Yeah. So we we're soft on the essential unity or or even the simplicity of God, if we want to inflect it in, into that, those terms, and that has significant consequences for how God acts. Yes. Uh, also, with respect to the the what I call the the principle, uh, an undivided principle. But yeah, the the indivisible operations of the Trinity. Um, or the inseparable operations of the Trinity is a uh, a common phrase that is very quickly uh, something that the church arrives at really immediately after you say God is Trinity, then you 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 want to ask, well, how does that affect how we think of how God acts in in certain respects? And one of the things that the church decided very, very early and recognized was uh, kind of virtually contained in in scripture was this axiom, so-called, or this operating principle, uh, opera ad extra induiza sunt, 
the external acts or works of God, the opera ad extra, are not divided. And this was a principle that arose specifically in the context of uh, a real, real uh, difficult problem, which, which centers really on the, the two mysteries of the faith, Trinity and hypostatic union. Mm. And how it could be that at least some effects of God in the economy, namely uh, the man Christ and, and all that Christ does, could be proper to one person, namely the son, uh, while still preserving the, the perfect unity of God as the one trinity. And so the operat extra in Duisa Sunt is one side of the coin trying to articulate how we navigate that issue. And it summarizes a very, very long series of intellectual judgments that we make about both mysteries. And in the practical area of theology proper, it it really becomes just kind of a basic methodological point Mm. or or a modus operandi. It kind of runs in the background of the Christian doctrine. You know, um, the way you you put it there uh, is so is so helpful, right? Because we're essentially trying to <clears throat> uh, safeguard the the unity, yeah. the unity of the Trinity, which is just a a basic fundamental commitment of of Christian Trinitarianism, right? And so, I, I it's sometimes uh, puzzling to me. When I see uh, individuals uh, reject it or suspicious of it, yeah, um, I I think that you know every age has its own challenges. Uh, you go back to you go back to previous centuries, um, Arianism at one point, Sabellianism at another point, and 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 the story goes on. Um, I, I wonder, you know, when, you know, 100 years from now, when historians and theologians look back, I wonder if they'll say uh, our age really struggled to come to terms with the unity, the unity of the Trinity, or what we would call the simplicity, yeah. the simplicity of God. And it's, it's uh, in ages past, this was... Uh, very much assumed as, as just fundamental to uh, an, a biblical and orthodox description of the Trinity. But in the last century, and then in our own century, um, both in academia and then at more popular levels, there seems to be just a, an, it, at the very least, unfamiliarity. Yeah. And it, at worst, uh, you know, a, a type of rejection or or suspicion. I I really like the way you you know you just put it there. I have here a a quote. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know pull Augustine into the conversation a little bit um, since uh, he, he's one of my uh, one of my favorites. So I know you have some of your favorites too. Um, but um, Augustine, you know, when he's talking about the external works of the Trinity are undivided. He says this, he says, the father 
and the Son and the Holy Ghost are inseparably united in themselves, since this Trinity is one God. And then he goes on to say, therefore, all the works of the one God are the works of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Um, It's interesting, I think, that, I mean, here, this is Augustine, but if you if you also read uh, a Gregory, and I do have Gregory here as well, um, a Gregory makes a similar point um, when he says we are not to think of the Father as ever parted from the Son, mm. nor to look for the Son as separate from the Holy Spirit, as it is impossible to mount to the Father unless our thoughts are exalted. Uh, through the Son, so it is impossible also to say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And, of course, he's picking up on that scriptural mm-hmm. confession that we experience uh, from, from conversion forward. Yeah. And hopefully a good church is also practicing when, whenever we say Jesus is Lord, well, we can— we can only do so by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so it's, I find it really reassuring the way that, you know, an Augustine or, or Gregory are kind of picking up on this scriptural language uh, to say that, well, these external operations that we're so familiar with, um, why, is it that, why is it that there is an inseparability here they're saying that that actually is only possible because the persons are indivisible in their very essence. So they're uh, they're being really good Trinitarian theologians by um, looking at say the missions and saying, "Hey, this this actually says something true about." The unity of God, and and uh, yes, certainly it reflects the processions as well. Um, and you, you know, you've Ryan, you've done a lot of of reading uh, on the tradition. How 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 does the you know I've mentioned Augustine and Gregory, but in some of your own research, how does the tradition like to talk about inseparable operations? Yeah, um, well, I think part of the the reason why today or even post twentieth century the 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 Induiza principle is is not always full fledged and operative is because the Christian tradition on the whole has assumed it as something so basic and foundational and principle and always there. It's it's kind of like a you know, the elephant in the room that everybody knows is there, but no one has to talk about because everyone knows it's there. Yeah. And so when people uh, work at, you know, uh, resourcing Trinitarian theology today or uh, those sorts of things, these more basic foundational principles that are assumed by the fathers, not, not as though they, they don't demonstrate it, but but they 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 just don't talk about it explicitly when they're when they're doing theology proper a lot of times. Um, but yeah, the, it's it's the common position of the of the Catholic Church, Catholic little C, Catholic Church. There's no theologian that denies it. 
Um, it's not too much to say that if you explicitly affirm the contrary, uh, you are you're you're advocating for for what is a heretical uh, uh, piece of doctrine, and uh, so you want to be very careful. That's again distinct from you know maybe not having clarity about it or maybe not knowing that you sure. need to affirm it or something like that. We, we mean explicitly someone who. Uh, affirms the opposite of what is intended in this doctrine, those sorts of things. But um, there, there's two, I think, main points that the tradition reflects really, really clearly about this doctrine that are, that are extremely fundamental to, to keep in mind when you're, when you're navigating with it. The first would be that the Induiza axiom is nothing else but a negative doctrine. So this is, this is not at all to say anything positive about God's acts. It's not at all to distribute the doctrine of Trinity in a positive way on God's acts or the effects of God or something like that. It's only a negative piece of doctrine that says what those acts are not, namely they're not divided. Now we all the time, you know, because we like to do shorthand, we'll we'll immediately rephrase that into affirmative things we say. So we say that they're sunt induiza, they are undivided. But nonetheless, the tradition to a man always affirms that no, this is simply to make a judgment of negation, simply to reflect upon the fact that this is not the way God's action is. It's unlike dividedness. Yeah. It's unlike composition in these sorts yeah. of things. And so you, you can see why it immediately arises, because as soon as you say that God is Trinity, as soon as you know what God is as Trinity in the partial degree that we know, the instinct, which is a, which is a right and just instinct, is to distribute whatever positively we know about God as Trinity onto the sphere of God's effects or works. And, and we do that in theology, but we don't do that independent of making sure we've taken note of the negative things that are, that are attending and, and really making space for that type of doctrine. So just like in theology proper, when we talk about the essence of God and we say things that God is, like he's wise, he's good, he's love, we also always have running in the background these negative names like infinity, immutability, or simplicity that oh. allow us or prepare us to receive what God is positively. It's the same same thing going on here. Oh. Um, I always like to to think of uh, the 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 attributes of God as adjectives of God that do describe Him, whereas the negative names are adverbs which describe how we interact with that, and that's really what's going on here. This is why. The Induiza principle is is more of a modus operandi. It's an adverb articulating how we as creatures approach knowing something about God's Trinitarian actions. Mm. And we can only do so, you know, turning away from various things that it's not. Uh. So, so that's the first thing uh, that is really important to keep in mind. The second thing would be that the, the Induiza axiom does not have to do at all with uh, understanding how God is the principle or source of creation. 
Uh, it only has to do with talking about how God is the end or term of creation. And this is a this is a really fine point that you know might might seem abstruse to some people, but we have to be really careful when we approach uh, the acts of God in light of Trinitarian theology. And the Christian church, again, to a man, has recognized that all that God is essentially and also the three persons are the principal or efficient cause of creation. Then there's some effects that come about which participate or terminate in some one of the persons properly or distinctly. And those are effects like the effects of the hypostatic union, the human nature of Christ, and so on and so forth. And so the Induiza is only speaking about God as the principle where everything is absolutely simple, everything is absolutely undivided, not God as the term where creatures participate in the inner Trinitarian life of God. And that's where we see God acting independently in the world, where we see the sun dying and these sorts of things. It's because there's a creaturely effect which participates in the sun uh, such that the sun is said to die and those sorts of moves. So that's the second main piece you really need to have in mind when you approach this issue. Yeah, that, uh, well, both of those points are are so important. I mean, the first point you make is so key because uh, that just goes back to uh, theological method. Yeah. And, and it uh, is meant to remind us that uh, there is a creator creature distinction here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we do this. We, we do that when we talk about divine attributes. Um, uh, the fathers often said, you know, it's it's um, appropriate to to say what, what God is not, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and given that He's infinite and we're finite, and um, we do that often. With, with, even with uh, say immutability, uh, we are denying that there is any change or simplicity. We are denying that uh, God is compounded or compositional of parts. But, but yeah, your, your point then continues, right, when we talk about the Trinity as well. But then your second point is also uh, so important because uh, I, I could sense there you're, you're uh, introducing at uh, what theologians have called appropriations. And um, on the one hand, we are affirming inseparable operations. Um, and then, uh, as you just did, you just modeled for us, uh, we, we then uh, are able to, whether it's the incarnation, like you said, or maybe it's uh, the spirit of Pentecost, um, we can even speak then of the, the you use this language of the way it terminates or termination i think you said um we can speak of uh appropriation in terms of uh say a specific person of of the godhead the the son the eternal son uh, as john's gospel says uh is incarnate well uh but but even as we we speak that way uh, we so I suppose we need to to remind people we're not uh, leaving behind inseparable operations uh, as if that's no longer true. Uh, it's very much true and, and actually undergirds uh, 
the very fact that we can then um, speak of Father, Son, and Spirit. One of the things that I have found so helpful is even when we are talking about appropriations, um, so just take, for example, uh, the Spirit, the way that uh, we we see in the book of Acts, for example, how uh, Jesus's promise comes true and the Holy Spirit is given and, and descends at Pentecost and, and uh, indwells us and, and so on and so on. Um, that, um, that, ref- that is very consistent with and reflects the Spirit's eternal origin in which this is the same Spirit uh, who from, from all eternity proceeds or is spirated from the Father and the Son. So um, sometimes when I see, um, uh, sometimes when people start talking about the, the works uh, of, of the Trinity, um, or, or maybe they're referring to, you know, uh, divine appropriations in, in a certain way, um, sometimes I, I've noticed that uh, that connection is not always clear in their mind. Um, that this isn't just like a, you know, this isn't something that a, a father or son or spirit are, are uh, just doing randomly. Um, they're always acting consistently with who they are. Uh, and, and so um, the spirit is not going to, this, the spirit is going to uh, come at Pentecost, but that is, that is fitting as, as the tr- tradition likes to say, it's fitting since this is the same spirit who proceeds, who proceeds from all eternity. Now, we have to be careful there because we don't want to confuse the two uh, as if what happens, um, you know, at Pentecost or with the incarnate, that, that doesn't make the Trinity Trinity. It doesn't constitute processions. Um, uh, rather, these, these missions are revealing uh, who this triune God is, uh, even apart from us. Uh, apart yeah. from creation, and it's appropriate. it's appropriate because there's something proper yes. to the Holy Spirit that's playing on the Latin to be appropriated is to be proper toward, uh, or, or to be toward what is proper, and uh, you know, so it's revelatory of what is properly the person himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, you know, are are many examples. Of this and and scripture, um, I you know to maybe Augustine comes to mind um, when he's talking about you know appropriating. Um, he can say things like, "Well, um, and of course he's he's already established inseparable operations, but then as he turns his attention uh, to any number of, of of works of salvation or creation." Um, he can say things like the father, <clears throat> he can speak of the father as a type of architect of salvation. He can speak of the son as a, as a redeemer, very biblical language there, right? The redeemer of our salvation. And then when he speaks of the Holy spirit, he'll speak of the spirit as the sanctifier of our salvation. Right? And you ask, well, what is, what is he doing? What, why is he, uh, he's modeling what we've just talked about. Um, he, he's modeling those, you know, appropriations uh, in a way that um, 
in a way that's faithful and consistent and corresponds to the father is unbegotten, the son is begotten, the spirit is the spirit is spirated. And uh, I find it so fascinating because when you look at when you look at so much of uh, the way that the scriptural uh, language is picked up, um, it seems to it seems to be that. Uh, whether it's salvation or creation or recreation, they they tend um, the tradition tends to 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 use this scriptural language in a way that um, certainly you know puts the spotlight, so to speak. Um, you know, as we our our eyes are you know you were talking about this a minute ago as you know our we're participating in a sense our eyes are drawn to. Uh, say the father or or maybe the son or the spirit um, but they always do it in a way that refuses to forfeit the unity and simplicity of father son son and spirit so i think for example the way of you know like a, a, a basil of caesarea for example the way he speaks of um creation uh and, and he can say he he can even Use this language of causation to talk about how is how is it that creation comes into being, how is it that it's sustained, and, and that sort of thing. And he can refer to say the Father is original cause, the Son is creative cause, the Holy Spirit is perfecting cause. Um, that's that may be a, a, a very sophisticated way of describing these, lots of distinctions. <laughs> yeah, these appropriations, but. But what he's what he's doing is is he's kind of just saying in his own way what scripture says when uh, you know Paul, for example, will talk about um, from the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's exactly right. From the Father through the Son and the Spirit, he'll speak of creation as occurring through through the Son, um, not because the Son is some you know subcontractor or some subordinate lesser or inferior you know being uh no this is the son who is inseparable um indivisible in essence with with the father and inseparable in the external works of the godhead and in this particular case when we're talking about creation um paul seems to assume that much yeah. um yeah I, I think, it, yeah yeah i think that's right and and yeah, appropriation is is definitely where we go with so many of of this you know so much of this language, whether it's scripture or uh, it's what the fathers genuinely mean, even if they uh, don't come out and, and you know put a little footnote. FYI, I'm talking about <laughs> appropriation here because you know you have yeah. to read all that the fathers say on these sorts of things and yeah. all the medieval theologians. These sort of, yeah. Um, but even even beyond like appropriation, which which is, you know, the Augustine will will describe it as uh, a principle of our principle for our knowledge of what's proper to the persons or something along those lines, which which means what he, what he's doing there is the, these creaturely effects are rationally terminative in mm. a lot. So there's something in our reason that's picked up with these effects, which which you know, reveals to us the person. 
But it, it, as you say, this is also how we resolve the, the other effects, which aren't only rationally terminative in one of the persons, but are, are really terminative, like, like the son's human nature, the, the son who is man who only dies, which is not just something that's rational on our side, but, but it's some, you know, some real participation in uh, the son's personal being. And, but you're, you're absolutely right. Both, both those have to do with creatures which terminate. One is just a, a rational termination, which is where we slot appropriation with so many of the things the scripture says. Um, but then there's a, there's a few things, and there's not many, but the effects of, of grace, what we call divine missions, mm-hmm. are, uh, are maybe we could describe them as real appropriations rather than just rational. It's probably not helpful because appropriation is always isolated to this over here, but that's the same sort of thing that's going on. It's these, these real effects which really terminate or are proper to one of the persons while also being caused indivisibly as God is the principle, right? And that, that's where, again, the operat action divisa principle operates. I, I do think too, as well, that this, this is another really uh, important feature of the operat extra indivisa axiom that, that is often mistaken today. And that is to say that most of the time people approach this issue and then deploy this principle in the context of, of talking about God's action in the sense that they want to somehow characterize God's action as triune or it has a, a Trinitarian shape or something along those lines. Whereas in the tradition, uh, really across the board, this is not to do with the triune shape of God's action, but the fact that there are some creatures, there are some effects of God's act in the world, which populate the supernatural order, which populate the order of grace rather than just the order of nature, among which are the man Christ, right? And then grace itself and all of the visible and invisible missions. And that's where the operat extra induisa principle comes to be a principle not in an effort that the fathers were doing to somehow characterize or shape God's action or discover the, the, the Trinity and creaturehood or something along those lines, yeah. but only in an effort to deal with this supernatural order, which comes about with the one God causing it inseparably. But nonetheless, within this order, there are effects properly terminating and participating in the life of the Trinity. And this is where we we deal with the missions of God uh, in the world. Uh, That last part, Ryan, is is really key uh, because of late, you've had some some thinkers uh, be quite uh, discontent with inseparable operations and appropriations um, and, and be quite critical or uh, sometimes they'll say, well, that's just not sufficient. They'll, they'll look at appropriations and say, that's just not sufficient. Uh, we need um, a, a second, we need another category like, um, you know, hierarchy or authority and subordination to somehow uh, 
fill in what a, what appropriations uh, is only, you know, partially getting at. Yeah. Well, what you just said helps to to kind of counter that discontent and criticism because um, we're not we're not looking at appropriations and saying, oh, this is why the Trinity is Trinity. Mm. Sometimes I, I think that criticism that I just mentioned uh, it tends to assume as if if it, as if that's what we mean, like. Um, so the incarnation, or as if these things actually, the, the external works of God in the economy, sometimes I, I get the sense that there's this assumption by some that, well, this this tends to define or, or even make or constitute why there's distinctions in, in the Godhead. Um, but if... We we would I, I would think we would want to uh, avoid that type of assumption um, because that that would then conflate um, you know God in and of Himself with the economy of salvation. Things so, with God don't hang on things with us. That's right. Rather vice versa, and, and that goes for everything we say about the essence of God. So God is wise not because he makes us wise, but we are made wise because God is wise. Yeah. It also goes for everything we say about Trinity. Mm. Missions or the effects of the missions are made to be the effects of the missions because of what God is in the persons. And so this man from, from Galilee is made to be the son because it participates in what the son is rather than the eternal son being made the son by virtue of participating in human nature, because that's just to make God right. into a creature. So we have to you know, keep, keep the order and the infinite distance between God and creatures always in view and recognize that, you know, we don't say God, jump and God jumps. <laughs> God says to us, jump and we jump. We jump. <laughs> you, you know, uh, that's, yeah. that's, it's, it's really what we're doing in, in even the most technical moments of theology yeah. is trying to, trying to distribute that and then act in our thought processes and in the, in the ideas we develop about what God is and meditating upon scripture in step and in concert with that, that mm. God is, what God is determines creatures rather than what creatures are determining God. Yeah, that's really well said. And I think that guards us then from being critical of, say, the pro-Nicene tradition uh, and, and looking at you know, something like appropriations and just thinking, oh, this is, this is insufficient somehow. There, well, uh, we're we're not actually trying to say that you know something in in the creator this somehow constitutes God as triune. Um, no, as as you mentioned there, we're we're actually talking about whether it's creation or providence or salvation. We're talking about uh, many of the effects uh, or causes that we are even participating in as creatures. Um, but we're trying to use language um, that that faithfully 
adheres to um, how any one of those, whether it's incarnation, um, for example, how, how that actually then is, is meant to be consistent with and reflect well, who this son is apart from the incarnation, right. apart from creation or salvation itself. And uh, I mean, a lot of this just goes back to some of those basic contours then of, of you know, attributes like divine aseity uh, that we, we, uh, we affirm divine aseity, but it actually comes through then in the way we talk about uh, the Trinity even and, mm-hmm. and how the, how we speak of this Trinity in terms of of each one of these you know creation providence and salvation it does make me uh, maybe we should take a little bit of time too and you know, if we if we come back to inseparable operations I, I'm guessing uh, I, I sometimes get this question a lot of uh, you know well where do we see this in in scripture uh, you know we've given some examples of appropriations. Um, but when it comes to inseparable operations, is this something that uh, biblical witness bear, bears witness to? Uh, one of the, I mean, I, I actually think that there's probably more uh, there than, than people realize. Um, uh, I can't help but think of the way uh, you think, for example, the way of, of uh, Paul how he speaks of say sanctification mm-hmm. and um, he'll speak this way both to, you know, to the Thessalonians. Um, but uh, well, Peter, Peter can speak this way as well. Um, but when he speaks of sanctification, he can say that on the one hand, he'll say, you know, Christ is our sanctification. Um, but then he'll, he'll advise the Thessalonians, this is in First Thessalonians 5, he says, pray, pray that God, that this God of peace himself uh, sanctifies you completely. Um, and the assumption that seems to be there with, with Paul is that, well, in, in every, every operation, uh, the Spirit is not working apart from or the spirit hasn't gone solo. <laughs> uh, the spirit isn't working, you know, independently, uh, but is working inseparably from the Father and the Son. And um, I mention this because I, I think sometimes as Christians, you know, when inseparable operations gets mentioned, we're a bit standoffish, and we don't realize the very way you and I are encountering our salvation and participating in this grace, Mm. like in sanctification itself. Um, It very much assumes, uh, it very much assumes that, well, yes, we're being perfected and made holy by the spirit, but why is that the case? It's because this spirit is conjoined with or inseparable with the father and, and, the son. I think that's one of the reasons why Paul, for example, maybe at one particular moment he mentions the spirit, another moment he mentions the father or the son, but he seems to assume in the end that uh, he's not dividing up 
the the Trinity, when he does, when he speaks of sanctification, he seems to assume that Father, Son, Spirit work inseparably in order to bring about holiness that he intends. Um, I mean, that's just one example. Yeah. The unfolding of salvation fittingly replays what has gone on in God himself, as it were, um, you know, or what God is as Trinity is fittingly represented in the pace of salvation as it unfolds in all of the contingency and all of the partiality of moments that we experience of things first here, first here, first there. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's all, it's all in line with what God is. Are you, when you think of inseparable operations, um, you know, I've mentioned sanctification. What, what comes to your mind as you are reading through the scriptures? I, I, I just think of uh, the fact that the, uh, what God does in the economy, uh, because it's rooted in what God is, uh, and because the this this outworking of salvation, which takes time for me, which you know, Christ comes two thousand years ago. I receive grace now. Um, it's it's all tied up and tied together. Mm. Uh, more on, on something much more fundamental than the rollout of effects might suggest. Yeah. It's also something that I, I like to think about when I think that the way that God works is less surprising, uh, or we think of it as less surprising than it actually is. Part of the burden of inseparable operations is to reflect the fact that though we know that God is Trinity, and though we understand that in some way, we don't understand it enough to align our understanding of God's acts and make them Trinitarianly shaped, because we don't have a hold of the Trinity in order to do that. Rather, what we find is that as God does things in our in our soul, in the world, um, it's 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 fitting or consistent with what He is as Father, Son, Spirit, and so it it makes sense in the rear view but when we when we want to look forward and and somehow bind god to our expectations of how he's going to act um we want to hold things in reserve to align ourselves of course with what scripture says he will do and has done and 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 you know has yet to do um, because God's revealed that infallibly to us, but even as we try to distribute that revelation of God into some portraiture of the future of how he's going to act, um, we've slipped in our own lack of knowledge and our own inability to foretell the future. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, it, it does come down to the, the same God who, who, who died for me and who, gave me faith is the same God who makes me grow in grace, makes me holy. And, and, and is the same God whom one day I will see. Um, it, it does come down to just things that are just that basic. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. It's quite comforting as well, because when we think about everything from worship to prayer, mm-hmm. um, as whether we realize it or not, uh, as Christians, um, that this this doctrine of inseparable operations, well, that means then that we actually have communion with the whole Trinity. <laughs> um, yeah, so that is, that's not to be taken for granted. Uh, sometimes, you know, we, we can, like you were saying, we, we kind of slip into this, this danger of maybe only thinking of, of one person mm-hmm. of the Trinity. Sometimes we can even talk that way. Um, and, and that can quite be, dis- that, that can lead to some despairing because uh, if I, I've talked to, to folks before who, who genuinely want to know, uh, well, you know, I, I know Jesus, but can I really, can I really know the father or can I know the spirit? Right. And the, even that, that thinking, we have to correct ourselves and say, remember, remember in all the external works, the father, son, and spirit are indivisible. Awesome. Yeah, so, so that that actually then has wonderful implications then for you as a as a believer, um, and and what it means for you to know God, uh, yeah. to to know not just the Son or not just the Spirit, but to know Father, Son, Spirit as as the one God. Yeah. Um, Thomas Aquinas has a great quote on this. He says, "The Father speaks all three persons in the Word." Uh, and that word is Christ. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's that's inseparability right there. Even yeah. down to very mysteriously the the narrowness of the created effect that is the Son, the Son according to His human nature, is the Father speaking Himself, the Son, and the Spirit to us, so that we participate in Christ through the body of his flesh, we are brought into or ushered into the, the whole Godhead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, what, one other thing that we should probably mention and maybe just try to, to clarify for, uh, for, for people out there is um, there's been a bit of uh pushback against inseparable operations uh, because uh, some will say, well, that's just an impossibility. Um, if there is, well, well, they'll say it this way. They'll say uh, that's an impossibility because um, as long as you have three persons, there, there has to be um, three wills and three different uh personal actions mm-hmm. and um and uh so so notice that the the pushback we might get is uh is saying that well we can't even conceive of inseparable operations uh because as long as there's three persons um each person must have their own separate uh action and um I think it's, I'd love to hear what 
how you would respond to this. Um, uh, one one thing I, I I would like to maybe say is in separable operations. Um, we mentioned this earlier. It is it's so true because it assumes an indivisibility of Father, Son, and Spirit. In essence, and, and so we don't want to lose that. Uh, that connection between those two truths. Um, but when we say Father, Son, and Spirit are one in essence, they're, or as the tradition says, they're subsisting relations of the one essence uh, subsists in Father, Son, and Spirit as three modes of subsistence. Well, when we, when we talk that way, uh, we are very much assuming, and I think rightly so, that, well, this we we can say one in essence or nature because there is one will in the Godhead, um, which means that when uh, when the Christian tradition has spoken of inseparable operations, they'll they they sometimes use other language to say there is one in the same action mm-hmm. or one in the same because there's one in the same uh, divine nature. And and at other times they'll say things like, well, the three act as one because they are one. Why? Well, they hold the same nature and the same will in common, you know, to to put it kind of roughly. Uh, Well, you know, if we go back to the language we were using, you know, when we said, you know, every operation is from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. When we say things like that, which is which is very biblical. Uh, in, in its language, um, the only way that can be the case is if uh, is if there is a single will in the Godhead. So I I want to just wanted to bring this up, you know, towards the end here because uh, I, I think this is one of the the major dividing lines between what I would say is is you know received Christian. Orthodoxy, as you were mentioning earlier, and some of the revisions that have taken place more recently, in which there is a bit of a push to go in the direction of, of say, three separate centers of consciousness and will. I guess what I'm trying to get at here is if we go that direction, it, it's not long before we have to dispense with inseparable operations. Now, I realize that it may be very difficult for our finite minds to understand uh, one will in the Trinity and, and how we then articulate that, you know, in, in terms of Father, Son, Spirit. But um, that shouldn't, that mystery shouldn't drive us then to dispense with, with the mystery itself and actually go in a direction, whether whether affirming three wills or or sometimes just using categories that would have to assume it. Maybe we say, oh, there's only one will and there's inseparable operations. But then when we go to talk about the Trinity, either in terms of, you know, a hierarchy or or some other conception, we, we then seem to actually uh, undermine the very concepts we're, we're, we say we hold to. Um, so but part of, you know, one of the reasons I, I bring this up in, in my book, Simply Trinity, is, is this, you know, we've got this giant uh, 
cruise liner, this giant ship, and it's it's going down this you know canal of of saying, well, we we have to have three wills. Well, what or, or we have to use categories that would assume you know three wills. But if we go down that canal, there's there's no there's no point you know in the future in which inseparable operations is actually going to be retained or or actually we're not we're not going to have the ability to actually uh, legitimately utilize it so i guess what i'm trying to say is let's let's turn this ship let's turn this ship around uh because we, we need to go down a different uh, a different path uh if we don't uh, i fear we're going to actually lose the ability uh, to speak of inseparable operations, whether it's in terms of creation, providence, or salvation, because we've actually compromised something quite uh, essential in our metaphysic. Yeah. What are your What are your? I don't want to draw this out yeah. too much. No, but what I, are your thoughts on that? No, I think that's that's right. I mean, um, we 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 don't want to go down that road uh, first of all because it's a fa- it's also a false road. Um, and, and we can also show that there's no, there's actually no reason to go down that road. So when we get to theology, it's not like we say, oh, I don't, I don't like the outcome, uh, or something along those lines, but actually, no, we don't, we don't have to go down that road because there's nothing that would bring us to do so. Mm. Um, either, either with respect to things we know from nature or when we get to Trinity, uh, what God has said in scripture. And so we expect that God sets the pace uh, because this is a mystery of the faith that we would not know anything about. We would not even know that it was. In fact, the, the tradition of the church is that all we know about, or all we can demonstrate with respect to the Trinity from nature is that it is not impossible. Not that it is possible, but that it is not impossible. That's all we can know. Um, you know, so God sets the pace for how we think about him because our minds are small and God has graciously uh, come down to, to, to make himself known so that we would uh, be able to enjoy him and commune with him. Mm. Um, as far as the, the question itself, yeah, I think that it, it does uh, come down to an, an issue of method or order of doctrine yeah. where the issue of inseparable operations, which it, once again is, is purely a negation, it's not at all an affirmation, uh, is simply to reiterate what we already know from speaking about the essence of God, which itself is not changed when we move to Trinity. So monotheism, or you know, Trinitarian theology is not other than monotheism, though it is more than monotheism. And it's more than monotheism in the sense that there are additional, there are some additional judgments, Mm. true things that we claim based upon what God has said in scripture, which do not at all uh, go against what we say outside of scripture when we just confess mere monotheism. Um, To to use the words of, of Karl Rahner, Roman Catholic theologian in the 20th century, whose chief concern was, among other things, to make sure we were Christian in our confession of the Trinity. 
really getting a lot of these things wrong. And, and that's where a lot of the 20th century departure from, you know, wanting to make God more Trinity when we're talking about the unity of God and these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So because of the fact that we're resting on God's revelation for all of our knowledge about Trinity, not only our understanding, but also our judgments, um, we are compelled by faith to make more judgments about God that, that truly terminate in, in what God is. Among, among those uh, are the judgments that the Father is, that the Son is, and that the Holy Spirit is, uh, and, and that those three are God, those three are really distinct, and so on. We don't lay in bed at night and worry that our creaturely being is too small to hold these things together uh, and and make intelligence or make sense about them. Um, There's no creaturely essence. There's no creaturely being which is large enough to contain God, even essentially, let alone what we know from supernatural revelation. So even though it's not fully intelligible in the sense that we can't exhaustively comprehend the mystery, nonetheless, we can have some understanding, which is true, that follows from our judgments. And that understanding follows from scripture and has a, uh, you know, an, a, a coherence about it, even though that coherence is always open and never closing God. It's nonetheless a sensible unfolding of what we find in scripture. So, yeah, when we get to issues like the the three wills, uh, you know, that as as the fathers would say, that's just to measure God with the measurement of a creature. Mm. That's that's not that's yeah. nothing more than than doing that. And and once again, uh I don't see any reason why we should measure God with the measurements of creatures. In fact, I see every reason why we should not do so. Yeah. So there, you know, we just have to be, have to be patient with our theology and recognize Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. There there are for us and among creatures, three persons is three wills. Yeah. But it's not for God because God's Mm -hmm. not a creature. And and uh, and you have to leave it at that. And, and this is not uh, to concede or to be, uh, you know, irrational or something like that. Uh, it's it's simply to reflect that God is God and we are not. Mm. Really, nothing more than that. Yeah. All right, and that is uh, maybe the best note to end on because uh, it it really puts us in our place you know, and, and reminds us, hey, we are the creature. We're not the creator. Uh, we are finite. We're not infinite. And uh, this this influences things as practical as worship. Uh, we, we dare not, uh, we dare not domesticate, alone manipulate who God is uh, yeah. to, to somehow, uh, you know, create them in, in an image of ourselves or our society yeah. that that would somehow uh, satisfy our own liking, but but actually uh, doesn't give us uh, well doesn't give us the scriptural God in the end, but but also doesn't give us a God that we can we can worship. And um, well, it's 
I'm really glad we got to have this this conversation. You know, we've been we've been talking about uh, inseparable operations and and uh, a little bit about you know how that's worked out and and simply Trinity um, book I wrote. But um, I'd love for maybe you could just share uh, for for just a second. Um, I, I think some of our our viewers and listeners would be interested to know what you're working on. Um, yeah, uh, I just work on theology proper, uh, primarily essence and attributes in Trinity. Okay. And at this point in my life, that's enough to, to yeah. keep me busy um, <laughs> and probably will be for, for quite a, quite a few years. So yeah, my, my, my primary goal is to uh, write a, a really a fulsome account of uh, theology proper, mm. uh, working on the the volume on Trinity, working on several other volumes that relate to Trinity that prepare for for that. Um, yeah, working on volume on subsistent relations in God. That's my uh, my dissertation as well is is dealing with uh, how how does the tradition uh, of the Catholic Church, Little C Catholic Church understand uh, how we uh, constitute the divine persons is the technical way to put it. And that's a very, very technical way. We don't mean constitute the way we mean constitute with us and among creatures because we're yeah. talking about God. Um, but yeah, looking at the the fathers, the high medievals, the neo-scholastics, the reformed orthodox, and then especially the resourcement theologians of the 20th century as well. And yeah, that's how I spend my time. Excellent. Well, Ryan, uh, we'll sign off, but it's been really good to uh, to chat and um, uh, talk about something so important like inseparable operations. It's really good to hear about your own projects, and and uh, I for one will be uh, looking forward to to seeing some of those and and uh, seeing the fruit of, of so much of your work and and benefiting from it. So thank you, uh, thanks for for taking time and and. Uh, it's, it's good to uh, not quite face to face, but something close to uh, be, at least being able to have a, a conversation, uh, one theologian to another. Amen. Well, thank you. It's great to see you. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.